two years before the mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Downer, Jr. Chapter 5. Cape Horn. Wednesday, November 5th. The weather was fine during the previous night, and we had a clear view of the Magellan Clouds and of the Southern Cross. The Magellan Clouds consist of three small nebulae in the southern part of the heavens, two bright like the Milky Way and one dark. They are first seen just above the horizon, soon after crossing the southern tropic. The southern cross begins to be seen at 18 degrees north, and when off Cape Horn is nearly overhead. It is composed of four stars in that form, and is one of the brightest constellations in the heavens. During the first part of this day, Wednesday, the wind was light, but after noon it came on fresh, and we furled the royals. We still kept the setting sails out, and the captain said he should go round with them if he could. Just before eight o'clock, then about sundown in that latitude, the cry of, All hands ahoy! was sounded down the forescuttle and the after hatchway, and, hurrying upon deck, we found a large black cloud rolling on towards us from the southwest and darkening the whole heavens. Here comes Cape Horn, said the chief mate, and we had hardly time to haul down and clue up before it was upon us. In a few minutes a heavier sea was raised than I had ever seen, and as it was directly ahead, the little brig, which was no better than a bathing machine, plunged into it, and all the forward part of her was under water, the sea pouring in through the bow ports and the hawse holes, and over the night heads, threatening to wash everything overboard. In the lee scuppers it was up to a man's waist. We sprang aloft and double reefed the topsails and furled the other sails and made all snug. But this would not do. The brig was laboring and straining against the head sea, and the gale was growing worse and worse. At the same time, sleet and hail were driving with all fury against us. We clued down and hauled out the reef tackle again, and close reefed the foretopsail and furled the main, and hove her to on the starboard tack. Here was an end to our fine prospects. We made up our minds to headwinds and cold weather, sent down the royal yards and unrove the gear, but all the rest of the top hamper remained aloft even to the sky-sail masts and studding sail-booms. Throughout the night it stormed violently, rain, hail, snow, and sleet beating upon the vessel, the wind continued ahead, and the sea running high. At daybreak, about 3 a.m., the deck was covered with snow. The captain sent up the steward with a glass of grog to each of the watch, and all the time that we were off the cape, grog was given to the morning watch and to all hands whenever we reefed topsails. The clouds cleared away at sunrise, and, the wind becoming more fair, we again made sail and stood nearly up to our course. Thursday, November 6th. It continued more pleasant through the first part of the day, but at night we had the same scene over again. This time we did not heave to, as on the night before, but endeavored to beat to windward under close reefed topsails, balanced reef trysail and foretop mast staysail. This night it was my turn to steer, or as the sailors say, my trick at the helm, for two hours. Inexperienced as I was, I made out to steer to the satisfaction of the officer, 
and neither Stimson nor I gave up our tricks all the time we were off the Cape. This was something to boast of, for it requires a good deal of skill and watchfulness to steer a vessel close-hauled, in a gale of wind, against a heavy head-sea. Ease her when she pitches is the word, and a little carelessness in letting her ship a heavy sea might sweep the decks, or take a mast out of her. Friday, November 7th. Towards morning the wind went down, and during the whole forenoon we lay tossing about in a dead calm, and in the midst of a thick fog. The calms here are unlike those in most parts of the world, for there is generally so high a sea running with periods of calm so short that it has no time to go down, and vessels, being under no command of sail or rudder, lie like logs upon the water. We were obliged to steady the booms and yards by guys and braces, and to lash everything well below. We now found our top hamper to be of some use, for though it is liable to be carried away or sprung by the sudden bringing up of a vessel when pitching in a chopping sea, yet it is a great help in steadying a vessel when rolling in a long swell, giving more slowness, ease, and regularity to the motion. The calm of the morning reminds me of a scene which I forgot to describe at the time of its occurrence, but which I remember from its being the first time that I had heard the near breathing of whales. It was on the night that we passed between the Falkland Islands and Staten Land. We had the watch from twelve to four, and coming upon deck, found the little brig lying perfectly still, enclosed in a thick fog, and the sea as smooth as though oil had been poured upon it. Yet now and then a long, low swell rolling under its surface, slightly lifting the vessel, but without breaking the glassy smoothness of the water. We were surrounded, far and near, by shoals of sluggish whales and grampuses, which the fog prevented our seeing, rising slowly to the surface, or perhaps lying out at length, heaving out those lazy, deep, and long-drawn breathings which gives such an impression of supineness and strength. Some of the watch were asleep, and others were quiet, so that there was nothing to break the illusion, and I stood, leaning over the bulwarks, listening to the slow breathings of the mighty creatures. Now one breaking the water just alongside, whose black body I almost fancied that I could see through the fog, and again another, which I could just hear in the distance, until the low and regular swell seemed like the heaving of the ocean's mighty bosom to the sound of its own heavy and long-drawn respirations. Towards the evening of this day, Friday 7th, the fog cleared off, and we had every appearance of a cold blow, and soon after sundown it came. Again it was clue up and haul down, reef and furl, until we had got her down to close-reef topsails. Double reef trysail, and reefed for Spencer. Snow, hail, and sleet were driving upon us most of the night, and the sea was breaking over the bows and covering the forward part of the little vessel. But as she would lay her course, the captain refused to heave her to. Saturday, November 8th. This day began with calm and thick fog, and ended with hail, snow, and a violent wind, and close-reefed topsails. Sunday, November 9th. Today the sun rose clear, and continued so until twelve o'clock, when the captain got an observation. 
and we thought it a little remarkable that, as we had not had one unpleasant Sunday during the whole voyage, the only tolerable day here should be a Sunday. We got time to clear up the steerage and the forecastle and set things to rights, and to overhaul our wet clothes a little. But this did not last very long. Between five and six, the sun was then nearly three hours high. The cry of, All starboard lines ahoy! summoned our watch on deck, and immediately all hands were called. Note. It is the fashion to call the respective watches starbolines and larbolines. End note. A true specimen of Cape Horn was coming upon us. A great cloud of a dark slate color was driving on us from the southwest, and we did our best to take and sell where the light sails had been set during the first part of the day, before we were in the midst of it. We had got the light sails furled, the courses hauled up, and the topsail reef tackles hauled out, and were just mounting the fore-rigging when the storm struck us. In an instant, the sea, which had been comparatively quiet, was running higher and higher, and it became almost as dark as night. The hail and sleet were harder than I had yet felt them, seeming almost to pin us down to the rigging. We were longer taking in sail than ever before. The sails were stiff and wet, the ropes and rigging covered with snow and sleet, and we ourselves cold and nearly blinded with the violence of the storm. By the time we had got down upon the deck again, the little brig was plunging madly into a tremendous head sea which at every drive rushed in through the bow-ports and over the bows, and buried all the forward part of the vessel. At this instant, the chief mate, who was standing on the top of the windlass at the foot of the Spencer mast, called out, Lay out there and furl the jib! This was no agreeable or safe duty, yet it must be done. John, a Swede, the best sailor on board, who belonged on the forecastle sprang out upon the bowsprit. Another one must go. It was a clear case of holding back. I was near the mate, but sprang past several, threw the downhaul over the windlass, and jumped between the nightheads out upon the bowsprit. The crew stood abaft the windlass and hauled the jib down, while John and I got out upon the weather side of the jib boom. Our feet on the foot ropes, holding on by the spar, the great jib flying off to leeward and slatting, so as almost to throw us off the boom. For some time we could do nothing but hold on, and the vessel, diving into two huge seas, one after the other, plunged us twice into the water up to our chins. We hardly knew whether we were on or off, when, the boom lifting us up tripping from the water, we were raised high into the air and then plunged below again. John thought the boom would go every moment, and called out to the mate to keep the vessel off, and haul down the staysail, but the fury of the wind and the breaking of the seas against the bows defied every attempt to make ourselves heard, and we were obliged to do the best we could in our situation. Fortunately, no other seas so heavy struck her, and we succeeded in furling the jib after a fashion, and coming in over the staysail nettings, were not a little pleased to find that all was snug, and the watch gone below, for we were soaked through, and it was very cold. John admitted that it had been a post of danger, which good sailors seldom do when the thing is over. 
The weather continued nearly the same through the night. Monday, November 10th. During a part of this day, we were hove to, but the rest of the time were driving on, under close-reefed sails, with a heavy sea, a strong gale, and frequent squalls of hail and snow. Tuesday, November 11th, the same. Wednesday, the same. Thursday, the same. We had now got hardened to Cape weather. The vessel was under reduced sail, and everything secured on deck and below, so that we had little to do but to steer and stand our watch. Our clothes were all wet through, and the only change was from wet to more wet. There is no fire in the forecastle, and we cannot dry clothes in the galley. It was in vain to think of reading or working below, for we were too tired. The hatchways were closed down, and everything was wet and uncomfortable, black and dirty, heaving and pitching. We had only to come below when the watch was out, wring our wet clothes, hang them up to chafe against the bulkheads, and turn in and sleep as soundly as we could, until our watch was called again. A sailor can sleep anywhere. No sound of wind, water, canvas, rope, wood, or iron can keep him awake. And we were always fast asleep when the three blows on the hatchway and the unwelcome cry of, All soeberloin is ahoy! Eight bells there below! Do you hear the news? The usual formula for calling the watch roused us up from our berths up on the cold, wet decks. The only time when we could be said to take any pleasure was at night and morning, when we were allowed a tin pot full of hot tea, or as the sailors significantly call it, water bewitched, sweetened with molasses. This, bad as it was, was still warm and comforting, and, together with our sea biscuits and cold salt beef, made a meal. Yet even this meal was attended with some uncertainty. We had to go ourselves to the galley and take our kid and beef and tin pots of tea and run the risk of losing them before we could get below. Many a kid of beef have I seen rolling in the scuppers, the bearer lying at his length on the decks. I remember an English lad, who was the life of the crew, whom we afterwards lost overboard, standing for nearly ten minutes at the galley with his pot of tea in his hand, waiting for a chance to get down in the forecastle, and, seeing what he thought was a smooth spell, started to go forward. He had just got to the end of the windlass when a great sea broke over the bows, and for a moment I saw nothing of him but his head and shoulders, and at the next instant, being taken off his legs, he was carried aft with the sea, until her stern lying up, and standing water. He had just got to the end of the windlass when a great sea broke over the bows, and for a moment I saw nothing of him but his head and shoulders, and at the next instant being taken off his legs, he was carried aft with the sea, until her stern lifting up and sending the water forward, he was left high and dry at the side of the longboat, still holding on to his tin pot, which had now nothing in it but salt water but nothing could ever daunt him or overcome, for a moment, his habitual good humor. Regaining his legs and shaking his fist at the man at the wheel, he rolled below, saying as he passed, A man's no sailor if he can't take a joke. The ducking was not the worst of such an affair, for, as there was an allowance of tea, you could get no more from the galley, and though the others would never suffer a man to go without, 
but would always turn in a little from their own pots to fill up his, yet this was at best but dividing the loss among all hands. Something of the same kind befell me a few days after. The cook had just made for us a mess of hot scouse, that is, biscuit pounded fine, salt beef cut into small pieces, and a few potatoes. This was a rare treat, and I, being the last at the galley, had it put in my charge to carry down for the mess. I got along very well as far as the hatchway, and was just going down the steps, when a heavy sea, lifting the stern out of water and passing forward, dropping it again, threw the steps from their place, and I came down into the steerage a little faster than I meant to, with the kid on top of me and the whole precious mess scattered over the floor. Whatever your feelings may be, you must make a joke of everything at sea, and if you were to fall from aloft and to be caught in the belly of a sail, and thus saved from instant death, it would not do to look at all disturbed, or to treat it as a serious matter. Friday, November 14th. We were now well to the westward of the Cape, and were changing our course to the northward as much as we dared, since the strong southwest winds, which prevailed then, carried us in toward Patagonia. At 2 p.m. we saw a sail on our larboard beam, and at 4 we made it out to be a large ship, steering our course under single reef topsails. We at that time had shaken the reefs out of our topsails as the wind was lighter, and set the main topgallant sail. As soon as our captain saw what sail she was under, he set the foretop gallant sail and flying jib, and the old weller, for such his boats and short sails showed him to be, felt a little ashamed and shook the reefs out of his topsails, but could do no more, for he had sent down his topgallant masts off the cape. He ran down for us and answered our hail as the whale-ship New England of Poughkeepsie, one hundred and twenty days from New York. Our captain gave our name and added ninety-two days from Boston. Then they had a little conversation about longitude, in which they found that they could not agree. The ship fell astern and continued in sight during the night. Towards morning, the wind having become light, we crossed our royal and skysail yards, and at daylight we were seen under a cloud of sail, having royals and skysails fore and aft. The spouter, as the sailors call a wild man, had sent up his main topgallant mast and set the sail, and made signal for us to heave to. About half past seven, their whale boat came alongside, and Captain Job Terry sprang on board, a man known in every port and by every vessel in the Pacific Ocean. Don't you know Job Terry? I thought everybody knew Job Terry, said a green hand, who came in the boat to me, when I asked him about his captain. He was indeed a singular man. He was six feet high, wore thick cowhide boots and brown coat and trousers, and, except a sunburnt complexion, had not the slightest appearance of a sailor. Yet he had been forty years in the well trade, and, as he said himself, had owned ships, built ships, and sailed ships. His boat's crew were a pretty raw set, just out of the bush, and, as the sailors phrase it, hadn't got the hayseed out of their hair. Captain Terry convinced our captain that our reckoning was a little out, and having spent the day on board, put off in his boat at sunset for his ship, which was now six or eight miles astern. 
He began a yawn when he came aboard, which lasted, but with little intermission, for four hours. It was all about himself and the Peruvian government, and the Dublin frigate and her captain, Lord James Townsend, and President Jackson, and the ship Anne McKim of Baltimore. It would probably never have come to an end had not a good breeze sprung up, which sent him off to his own vessel. One of the lads who came in his boat, a thoroughly countrified-looking fellow, seemed to care very little about the vessel, rigging, or anything else, but went round looking at the livestock, and leaned over the pigsty, and said he wished he was back again tending his father's pigs. A curious case of dignity occurred here. It seems that in a whale ship there is an intermediate class called boat steerers. One of them came in Captain Terry's boat, but we thought he was a coxswain of the boat, and a coxswain is only a sailor. In the whaler, the boat steerers are between the officers and crew, a sort of petty officers, kept by themselves in the waist, sleep amidships, and eat by themselves, either at a separate table or at the cabin table after the captain and mates are done. Of all this hierarchy we were entirely ignorant, so the poor boat steerer was left to himself. The second mate would not notice him, and seemed surprised at his keeping amidships, but his pride of office would not allow him to go forward. With dinner time came the experimentum crucis. What would he do? The second mate went to the second table without asking him. There was nothing for him but famine or humiliation. We asked him into the forecastle, but he faintly declined. The whaleboat crew explained it to us, and we asked him again. Hunger got the victory over pride of rank, and his boat-steering majesty had to take his grub out of our kid and eat with his jackknife. Yet the man was ill at ease all the time, was sparing of his conversation, and kept up the notion of condensation under stress of circumstances. One would say that, instead of a tendency to equality in human beings, the tendency is to make the most of inequalities, natural or artificial. At eight o'clock we altered our course to the northward, bound for Juan Fernandez. This day we saw the last of the albatrosses, which had been our companions a great part of the time off the Cape. I had been interested in the bird from descriptions and Coleridge's poem, and was not at all disappointed. We caught one or two with a baited hook, which we floated astern upon a shingle. Their long, flopping wings, long legs, and large, staring eyes give them a very peculiar appearance. They look well on the wing, but one of the finest sights that I have ever seen was an albatross asleep upon the water during a calm off Cape Horn, when a heavy sea was running. There being no breeze, the surface of the water was unbroken, but a long, heavy swell was rolling, and we saw the fellow, all white, directly ahead of us, asleep upon the waves, with his head under his wing, now rising on the top of one of the big billows, and then falling slowly until he was lost in the hollow between. He was undisturbed for some time until the noise of our bows, gradually approaching him, roused him. When lifting his head, he stared upon us for a moment, and then spread his wide wings and took his flight.' 